Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome uh, back to another edition of Behind the Knife. I'm here with uh, Jason, Kevin, Scott Steele, and we have Dr. Ferries, uh, who's a surgical oncologist and melanoma surgeon um, at the Angelus Clinic and uh, is also on the faculty at the John White uh, Cancer Institute. Uh, he's the lead, lead author on the recent uh, article in the New, e- New England Journal of Medicine about completion dissection or observation for sentinel node metastasis and melanoma. Dr. Ferries, thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, just to get started, if you could just share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you did your training, um, and how you got uh, involved in melanoma surgery. Oh, you bet. Um, so I'm uh, from Pennsylvania originally. Uh, come from a family that has a decent number of surgeons in it. My dad's a surgeon, and my uh, my brother as well. Um, and uh, I um, uh, did medical school at Cornell, and uh, then went to Penn for residency. And at Penn was uh, really my first real introduction to sentinel node and to melanoma and to uh, immunology. And I worked there with uh, Doug Praker in surgical oncology, but my uh, my primary mentor was uh, Brian Zernicki. And uh, so Brian taught me about sentinel node, and we did um, clinical and translational uh, projects uh, looking into how sentinel nodes work and, uh, and other um, features of tumor immunology. Um, so by the time it was time for a uh, fellowship for me, uh, one of the main places that I looked at was John Wayne, uh, because of its history with Sentinel node and, uh, the, the work that Don Morton did there and, uh, developing that technique. Uh, so I matched out there for uh, fellowship and, uh, have for the most part been there ever since, uh, stayed on faculty after, uh, finishing fellowship. We did uh, venture back to the East coast, uh, briefly. Uh, where I was at Yale, but um, but really uh, Santa Monica is now home, uh, and uh, we'll probably be here for uh, the foreseeable future anyway. And John Wayne was a great experience um, uh, from a training standpoint, and to have worked with Don Morton uh, when he was alive, and um, uh, to have been uh, sort of tasked by him to carry on uh, the work that he had started uh, was... Um, you know, a great honor, and I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be uh, still doing it. So, what, what what percentage of your practice these days is uh, clinical, and how much? I know you're very very active in the research community, um, and uh, those uh, out there are probably aware of uh, the numerous publications uh, that you that you have, and the numerous ongoing research projects that you have going. So, what percentage of your time uh, now is devoted to research versus uh, clinical practice? Uh, it's probably about 60% uh, clinical and 60% research, somewhere <laughs> in that range. Um, it, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, as with it, it, it's for everyone, I'm sure. It's a challenge to balance it, too. But um, the nice thing about the type of research that I do is that it melds very easily into uh, the clinical practice. Uh, so it's really hard to draw a line in between where one ends and, and the other begins. Um, but uh, probably about half of my time is devoted to um to research in various forms. So we wanted to jump right in and and kind of get a little background uh, to the the MSLT uh, trials, so the MSLT one and MSLT two. 
um, if you both of which uh, you're the you know the lead author on the MSLT two study and, and the head author on the MS uh, MSLT one uh, study. If you could give us a little bit of background, starting with uh, MSLT one, what that trial was all about, you know what motivated it, and how um, how that the results from that trial have really kind of shaped and changed clinical practice. Yeah, no. Um, so the multicenter selective lymphadenectomy trials, um, uh, both having to do with uh, aspects of uh, central node biopsy uh, for melanoma patients. Um, and I guess really the rationale dates back uh, a very long time, um, back to the uh, some of the very earliest um, uh, kind of descriptions and, and treatment recommendations uh, for melanoma, and it really goes back more than a century, really, uh, to um, Herbert Snow, uh, who was a, um, a surgical oncologist, a, a cancer surgeon in London uh, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, and he was the first one to propose um, sort of preemptive uh, excision of regional lymph nodes for patients with melanoma. Uh, he called it anticipatory gland excision. Um, and uh, that was really the beginning of the controversy about how to treat regional lymph nodes in uh, in melanoma if they were not clinically involved when the patient presented. And he was suggesting that in everyone, uh, all of the regional nodes should be taken out, and uh, those who were opposed uh, felt that that was a, an overly morbid operation that uh, uh, didn't necessarily add to the uh, clinical care of the patient. And that, over the years, eventually led to a whole series of randomized clinical trials of elective lymph node dissection, uh, with um, Charles Balch uh, leading up some of those trials in the United States, uh, Veronese and Cascinelli in, uh, in Italy. Um, and uh, the results of those trials were, I guess, somewhat equivocal. Uh, for the most part, they didn't have an overall statistical survival advantage to elective lymph node dissection although the trends were pretty uniformly in that direction, and, and they all had uh, fairly substantial subgroups that derived uh, statistically significant benefits. Um, and so it was sort of a controversy that um, raged on for, for many, many years. And in the context of that um, environment and, uh, is where Sentinel Node really was developed. Uh, developed by Don Morton, and um, although the concept of a central node goes goes way back as well, and others have have used that term, he was really the one that figured out how to um, how to actually do the procedure, how to get a procedure that actually worked to identify uh, the central node, the first draining node for um, for a regional uh, for a primary tumor. Um, and for him, it grew out of uh, he was a proponent of elective lymph node dissection, and um, and in terms of trying to decide for patients who might have ambiguous uh, nodal drainage how to um, how to identify what nodes to take out, uh, they started to work on lymphocytograms, and it was initially with colloidal gold, um, and basically they used injections of this colloidal radioactive gold at the primary tumor site to decide uh, what basin, uh, say for melanoma of the trunk, what lymph node basin to dissect. Um, but as they were doing that, they noted over time, as, as uh, the tracers got better and as imaging got better, um, they noted that uh, oftentimes they would see drainage to an individual lymph node or a small number of lymph nodes in the basin and began to think, well, we could probably just take out that lymph node to assess uh, the status of the basin. Uh, and they began to inject uh, 
uh, vital blue dyes uh, at the primary tumor site and trace those lymphatics into the axilla. And, uh, and lo and behold, you found the blue node uh, that proved to be representative of the basin overall. Uh, there was a certain amount of resistance uh, to the recognition of uh, this revolutionary technique. Uh, they presented the data, Don Morton presented the data at the Society of Surgical Oncology in, way back in 1990. Um, and although it was apparently well-received at the meeting, uh, they had a great deal of difficulty getting that uh, paper actually published. Uh, it took a couple of years before, uh, before they found a, uh, a, an acceptance uh, for that paper, and it came out of in archives of surgery in 92, um, and since has become a, an incredibly widely cited paper, obviously. Uh, but very soon after, um, after he had published that and presented the information, uh, he brought a group of um, of experts uh, out to the John Wayne Cancer Institute, essentially to um, teach them this uh, technique and uh, to plan, really to begin planning this first MSLT trial. Uh, and uh, so then that trial was rolled out at a number of uh, sites, both in the U.S. and around the world, um, uh, to really test uh, the Sentinel Node technique. And MSLT1... Uh, which started in, uh, I think it was about 1994, um, enrolled patients, and they were randomized to either have uh, a wide excision of their primary melanoma with lymphatic mapping and sentinel lymph node biopsy, uh, or to wide excision alone uh, with just a clinical observation of uh, the nodes and only dissection if they, um, if they developed a regional recurrence. Um, and the trial enrolled uh, just over 2,000 patients, um, and then, as you say, uh, just a few years ago, the, uh, the 10-year results, uh, we published that. And uh, the trial showed uh, very clearly some things that had been well-established uh, by that point. It showed that the sentinel node was, uh, for those patients, was the most important prognostic variable. Um, and uh, clearly taking out uh, the sentinel node improved disease-free survival. Um, and but for the um, the primary outcome of the study, which was melanoma-specific survival for the entire group, there was not a statistically significant benefit uh, as far as that was concerned for the group overall. Now, in those uh, patients, say, in, in those patients in that trial, the, if they had a positive sentinel node, they had an immediate uh, completion lymphadenectomy. Is that correct? Yeah, no, that's right. If uh, and that was the standard at the time. Really, sentinel node was. Uh, was de devised, the, the concept was as a way of identifying patients with any nodal disease who would then immediately go on to a completion lymph node dissection. Um, and so it uh, avoided dissections for people with negative nodes, but the, the assumption still was that anybody with any positive nodes would go on to have a, the full dissection done. And so that was the way the trial was run as well. And in that, at that time in, in the 90s, in 1994, I mean, I, I just don't know, in 1994, what were um, a, a lot of people just doing, um, you know, uh, lymphatonectomies for, uh, for any um, intermediate thickness melanoma, or was the practice of doing, you know, clinical observation of the nodal basins uh, kind of the standard? There was a great deal of variability from from place to place. There were there were believers in elective lymph node dissection and uh, people who didn't believe in it. And uh, so, uh, what you ended up having done, if you were the patient, had a lot to do with who you happened to see uh, as the surgeon, whether or not they were somebody that was on uh, on one side of that controversy or the other. Okay. 
So the uh, the primary endpoint uh, of the trial, NAMA specific survival, was not significantly different. It was an absolute difference of about three uh, percent or so between the two arms of the trial, and uh, because the number of patients that had any nodal involvement was a minority of the of the trial population overall. Um, there wasn't, uh, you know, enough uh, statistical power really to have that turn out to be a, a statistically significant difference. Uh, but one additional analysis that we did of the trial was to look at the patients who actually had lymph node disease, uh, comparing patients that had positive sentinel nodes to those who subsequently developed a nodal recurrence in their basin. And it worked out to be um, almost exactly the same uh, percentage of patients in each arm of the trial that uh, wound up having uh, nodal involvement uh, detected either by sentinel node or by clinical recurrence. When you look at that group, the group that actually had uh, disease in their lymph nodes when they presented and compare outcomes of those who had it taken out early uh, versus those who had it taken out late, uh, the group that had it taken out early did much better uh, from a uh, survival standpoint. So they were uh, a little bit, uh, uh, it was just about a 50% reduction in their risk of dying of melanoma if they had the disease taken out early rather than late. Um, now that's a subgroup and it's one of the weaknesses of all of these uh, trials when you're uh, thinking uh, of a therapeutic effect um, uh, that you're generally looking at certain groups that seem to benefit and not others. Um, and that can only um, uh, you know, it, it, uh, there, there are always some statistical issues uh, about how uh, reliable that is. Uh, so in addition to just that subgroup and a multivariable analysis in the trial, we, uh, together with uh, Bob Elishoff and his uh, group at UCLA, who are the statisticians for the trial, uh, did what's called a latent subgroup analysis. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, essentially a way uh, that they um, worked uh, with various uh, simulations to try and uh, ensure that that was a statistically robust conclusion that, in fact, if you have nodal disease, it's better to have it out early rather than late. Uh, and so that did end up confirming uh, this uh, feeling that uh, for at least the intermediate thickness population, uh, if you have the nodes out early, that's better than waiting. Uh, the same is not true, though, of uh, patients with thick melanomas. In that group, even in this uh, latent subgroup, uh, type analysis, um, there doesn't appear to be a survival difference uh, for thick melanomas uh, for early nodal uh, excision. There is prognostic value, there's uh, region disease control value, uh, but not a survival benefit. So taking this forward, then how did all this lead into MSLT2? Well, um, you know, as as more and more sentinel nodes were done, it uh, became apparent that a lot of the people that had completion lymph node dissections done, um, they didn't have any more disease in the nodal basin. The vast majority of the time, um, all of the nodal metastases, it seems, are taken out uh, with just the sentinel node procedure. And uh, since that is much less um, morbid than uh, complete dissection, it raised the question of, uh, do you actually have to do this uh, completion dissection? Um, the other part uh, that we, we noticed and, and has been reported from other, uh, other centers as well is that if you look at patients that have any non-central node involvement, uh, those patients tend to do uh, relatively poorly. Uh, so they have a much higher risk for recurrence and melanoma-related death than if all of the disease is confined 
uh, to the central node. So there's maybe sort of a, a qualitative or functional distinction between a central node and a non-central node. Um, but it suggests that for patients that have non-central node involvement, their prognosis may be bad enough from the beginning that um, uh, that they will not do any better to have surgery early uh, rather than late. Their their survivals tend to fall into the stage 3B or th- stage 3C um, range rather than the 3As that we think of for most uh, sentinel positive patients. And um, so all that together then led to this question of um, uh, do you have to do a completion lymph node dissection uh, in the setting of a positive sentinel node, or can you follow those patients uh, closely and uh, only intervene if they have a, uh, a nodal recurrence down the road? So it's kind of it's a different question from MSLT1. Uh, MSLT1 is really any intervention or none, uh, whereas this is um, uh, once you've taken out the sentinel node, does does taking out the additional nodes in the basin actually help? And so that trial started um, uh, started accruing patients around 2005, uh, and then finished up just a few years ago. And then, as of um, uh, just about two or three weeks ago, uh, it was then uh, finally reported out. So, for those who haven't uh, read it yet, just give us a little bit of a background in terms of kind of. Uh, how you set it up, what were the pertinent findings, and then kind of where we're at right now in terms of uh, the interesting results that you came up with. So it um, it uh, had to be a, a fairly substantial trial in terms of its size uh, to have uh, the, the sort of statistical power that would um, uh, give us assurance uh, of a um, uh, of a solid uh, definitive result. And um, the issue is that. Uh, it's it's um, essentially powered as an efficacy trial, um, but um, uh, to be able to uh, rule out um, a difference between the two arms of about five percent, um, and so to have a true equivalence uh, clinical trial, uh, which obviously would be um, everybody's ideal for for a trial of this sort, um, would uh, would not really be possible. But um, to get a, a, a result that was robust enough that even within um, certain uh, groups within the overall population, you, you had a high level of confidence that if you didn't find a difference, then there wasn't going to be a clinically meaningful difference. Uh, so it had to be a, a, a trial of um, close to 2,000 uh, randomized patients to be able to get that kind of uh, power. And uh, since these are all node-positive patients, uh, we had to... Um, expand uh, the number of centers that were involved well beyond what was the case for MSLT1. And so in MSLT2, uh, there were um, something over 60 centers uh, around the world that um, contributed to the trial and enrolled patients. Um, And uh, the patients could enter either through a screening phase in the trial prior to their sentinel nodes being done, uh, or they could enter after having had a positive sentinel node and before their dissection. And they are just uh, the, the patients then that are randomized are um, assigned either to immediate completion lymph node dissection, as would have been the standard practice before, uh, or to observation of the nodal basin. As part of that observation, uh, they would have uh, lymph node ultrasounds um, during their follow up visits. Um, and um, And then have a dissection if they had an isolated um, 
lymph node recurrence uh, at a later date. Um, the primary endpoint is a comparison for the overall group, a comparison of uh, melanoma-specific survival uh, between the two arms. Um, and, um, and there are quite a number of other secondary outcomes as well um, that uh, will be of, of interest as well. But really, the, the, um, the, the practice-changing part of it is this uh, comparison of uh, survival between the two groups. So the sounds, you know, as you know, kind of as I was reading the study, as we're talking about it, I'm, I'm picking up kind of some resonance with, you know, the what we're what we've been seeing with breast cancer and axillary lymph node dissections and the recent Z11 and whether or not we need to do uh, axillary dissections for for breast cancer. And I, as a, yep. a recently graduated resident, I, I know that residents across the country are. Are, are are probably bemoaning the results of this because it, it, it takes away an, an, another <laughs> another cool procedure for us. Um, yeah. it, what does it say about just kind of our fundamental understanding of the way cancer spreads and and local regional you know control? The fact that we're seeing this you know kind of this trend uh, versus less is more. Right. Well, I think there are some important distinctions between uh, Z11 and MSLT. And uh, I mean, conceptually, they're very similar trials, but breast cancer and melanoma are very different diseases. Um, so if you look at um, if you look at Z11, uh, if you look in, at the patients there that uh, developed uh, nodal, the, if you compare patients that had uh, nodes involved on uh, completion dissection, non-sentinel node involvement, I think it was in the neighborhood of 17% of the patients in that trial had positive non-sentinel nodes. Um, but if you look at the patients that actually had nodal recurrences uh, who did not have a dissection, that number is much, much smaller in the single-digit uh, range. And, uh, and that suggests then that, that those other nodal metastases uh, presumably were treated in some other way. Uh, so effective adjuvant hormonal therapy or chemotherapy or uh, radiation. And uh, a lot of the patients in Z11 ended up having some radiation get into at least their level one and two uh, lymph nodes. Um, and so uh, I think a large part of that uh, result has to do with the effectiveness of the other treatment modalities that were available for breast cancer at the time. In MSLT1 uh, or in MSLT2, um, the uh, uh, adjuvant therapies uh, that will have been used for, for melanoma patients are not terribly effective. Um, and in fact, when we look at the percentages, uh, even now, the percentages of patients that have non-sentinel node involvement in the two arms of the trial, uh, in the um, observation group, actually, the, the percentage is higher. It's about 8 to 10% higher uh, than the patients with uh, non-sentinel node involvement seen on pathology at the time of a completion dissection. Uh, so it's the opposite result to, uh, to Z11. Most likely that's explained uh, by um, small non-central node metastases uh, that went undetected in the completion uh, dissection specimens since they are generally just looked at with uh, single um, section H&Es. Uh, so there, there must have been small metastases missed that make up, I think, for that difference between the percentages. But it does suggest that... Uh, um, uh, there aren't other effective uh, therapies um, that clean up the nodal disease if it's not taken out surgically. I think the, the reason why there's not a survival difference um, is that patients with non-central node involvement uh, kind of fall into this fairly bad prognostic group. 
And for them, uh, either their disease has gone um, systemic uh, at the time of the in initial surgery or it's not going to. Uh, so that the delay that it takes uh, between when the initial surgery is done and when a, the, the section finally takes place when they develop a clinical recurrence, that delay doesn't affect their outcomes overall uh, just by the biology of the disease. So I, I, I do think that there will be uh, lymph node dissections to, to be done. Um, it's just a matter of the, the timing will change, and it will cut out a, a decent number of them. Uh, so uh, there are non dental nodes that become clinically apparent in about 25% um, or so of uh, patients that were in the, uh, in the trial. Uh, so it may reduce the, the absolute number of lymph node dissections that, um, that get done, but there will still be some that will be able to be done over time. Yeah, you kind of you kind of beat me to the punch, but I was going to ask you the other direction. Do you anticipate uh, that there's going to be something else on the horizon that in three to five years we're not going to be doing sentinel lymph nodes? That something else is there, and that based on kind of some of these, the next step is: do we need a sentinel lymph node at all outside of prognosis? Well, that that does seem to be um, some of the way things sound like they're moving in the world of of breast cancer. Uh, there's uh, effective uh, genomic profiling, and uh, because these other therapies are um, relatively effective for microscopic disease, radiation, and, and uh, the systemic therapies, um, that seems to be, to me anyway, uh, as a little bit of an outsider there, how that looks like it's moving. I don't think that is how it will probably uh, work out in melanoma. At least I very much hope that it doesn't work out that way. And And the reason for that is that um, it appears from uh, the two trials, if we look at the two trials together, the MSLT1 and 2 together, um, it appears, my, the lesson I take from it is that it's actually the central node biopsy uh, that is by far the most important part of all of this. So it gives you critical prognostic information, but the central node itself is probably therapeutic. So in about three quarters of the patients, Having done the sentinel node biopsy, and in the absence of other effective therapies, those patients were given regional disease control just from the nodal biopsy. Um, and so it'd be hard to say, even if you were uh, to develop a gene expression profile or some other um, tool to uh, develop an accurate enough prognostic assessment, it'd be hard to say we're going to condemn you to have a full dissection when you develop a clinical recurrence if we can head that off uh, in about three quarters of the cases by just doing a central node biopsy. So if anything, I think the, the result of MSLT2 adds to the rationale for doing a central node biopsy rather than uh, diminishing it in any, in any way. So what, per, what uh, percentage of patients uh, in this MSLT2 trial um, who did have you know positive uh, disease on their sentinel node, uh, was the adjuvant therapy standardized or were they enrolled in, you know, various clinical trials? Um, do we have any idea kind of what, uh, you know, types of immunotherapies or anything else that they were treated with? Uh, actually most patients didn't get any form of adjuvant therapy hmm. in the trial. It wasn't precluded by the study. Uh, the protocol allowed it, uh, per the, uh, standard of care for the site, um, for some of the adjuvant clinical trials, they weren't eligible because uh, you were only eligible if you had um, if you had a dissection done. But um, but it, it was actually ended up being a fairly small minority of patients uh, in the trial that uh, 
got any form of uh, um, adjuvant therapy in both arms of the trial. I think it was 6% and 8%, something like that, in, in each of the arms of the trial. So I don't think uh, adjuvant therapy had anything to do with the result one way or the other um, in the study. And so far, uh, for the available adjuvant therapies, um, I think uh, you know we have a long way to go in terms of uh, having uh, satisfactory adjuvant therapies in the disease. Uh, clearly, doing making some progress and doing better, and it'll be very interesting to see as uh, the latest clinical trials involving uh, PD-1 inhibitors, as those results start to come out, uh, it, it, we may see some uh, better choices for adjuvant therapy there. But for the trial itself, it, it, there wasn't anything great available. And what has been uh, the response from both uh, the domestic and international uh, surgical oncology communities? Is, is everyone embracing this, or are there critics or skeptics of this? Well, it's been, uh, there's been an interesting uh, spectrum of response, um, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be more uh, responses that'll come in over the next uh, few months. Um, but... Uh, some have um, essentially uh, interpreted the result to, uh, to indicate that you should essentially never do a completion lymph node dissection uh, again. Um, others have been much more uh, reluctant uh, uh, and, and sort of feel like um, completion lymph node dissection uh, should still be the default, uh, but that uh, you can uh, use the, the trial data to justify not doing a dissection in some instances. I think most people fall somewhere between those two ends. And um, because clearly there still is some uh, utility to a completion lymph node dissection, there are things that you get out of it um, that you don't get if you avoid the operation. Uh, one of those is additional prognostic information. Uh, so we looked in the trial, and we've looked at this in other instances as well. We look at patients that have uh, the completion of section done. Uh, there is significant and independent prognostic information that comes out of the status of their non-central nodes. So for people that want to really nail down as precisely as they can their risk of recurrence, their risk of dying of melanoma, um, those people may choose to have a completion of section done uh, just for the sake of that information. And when you're available, adjuvant therapies are um, uh, of some benefit, but quite toxic. Uh, some people want to have that information to weigh that subsequent choice. And it did clearly decrease the risk of recurrence. You know, it was all nodal recurrences for the most part that there was a difference in. Um, but uh, there's some value in, in avoiding recurrence as well. Um, but clearly, it comes at the cost of additional toxicity and, and primarily the risk of lymphedema, uh, which was quite a bit higher with completion dissection, obviously, than in the observation group. So there still is this balance. There still needs to be a um, thoughtful discussion uh, with the patient about uh, what they had in their central node, what their chance of non-central node involvement is, and then the pros and cons of having an immediate complete lymph node dissection done. I think, uh, at least in my experience, uh, many more patients are going to choose to have observation now that they have the reassurance of the survival data. Uh, but there will still be people who uh, will feel better and uh, and would choose to have a node dissection uh, even with the MSLT result. So how long before we, um, and, and there's no question that, you know, these findings are, are going to be practice changing, but, uh, you know, how long before we see this type of stuff incorporated into our uh, NCCN guidelines um, and, and have, has that, that process already started? Uh, 
Um, I think it, yeah, so I don't think it'll be long. Uh, NCCN has, uh, you know, they have um, increased the frequency of their updates to the guidelines, and so the, the uh, updates come out uh, fairly regularly. Um, uh, Dan Coit, uh, Dr. Coit, uh, who chairs the Melanoma NCCN committee, um, has been obviously incredibly interested in this question, um, and um, and his practice, I know, has uh, has morphed over time as more data has come out uh, to avoid completion dissection in uh, more and more of his patients over time. I think now with this reassurance, it uh, wouldn't surprise me if in the very next update of the NCCN, uh, there is a um, an adjustment in the guideline. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what how, how precisely that's worded. Um, ASCO and SSO are also in the process of updating their uh, guideline uh, with regard to uh, completion lymph node dissection and sentinel node in general. Um, and so this result is being incorporated, I know, into that into that guideline. Um, and I think there's it's it's still not 100% settled what they'll how the guidelines will be um, finalized. But I suspect that uh, both completion dissection and observation will be acceptable options. Uh, and, uh, you know, after thorough consideration, I think uh, they both will, will be standard possibilities for these patients. What's on the horizon for uh, melanoma researchers and surgeons? Uh, what's the next big question that we need to answer about melanoma? Well, there's more to be learned uh, from, from the MSLT studies. This, the MSLT2 is still ongoing. Um, and uh, we'll continue to gather follow-up information on these patients. Um, one of the things that's important to note about the uh, MSLT2 trial, and it's true of the similar German study that was done as well, is that these are patients that have very small amounts of uh, tumor in their central node, so very low-volume uh, disease patients. And uh, I think people are a little less comfortable with the idea of observing patients that have bigger, uh, say, five uh, uh, millimeter or greater metastases in their central nodes, patients that are probably at higher risk of non-central node involvement. And so we'll continue to gather follow-up information from this study, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be others that'll be looking at, um, at potentially trying to nail down the risks and benefits for patients with uh, higher-risk disease, with uh, larger volume uh, central node metastases try and see if the result is really applicable to everyone uh, or if it's a more select group, uh, similar to the way that uh, the Z11 study was initially limited in terms of uh, which patient populations they were thinking of applying it to. Um, and it has uh, sort of continued to grow as time has gone on and people become more comfortable with the concept. So I think that's one area. But I think we, we need to understand the biology of this a little better than we do. Um, and uh, so I think that there are important translational studies that uh, should be done um, because, you know, we clearly see patients that have a disease that will um, spread to lymph nodes but not beyond uh, and other patients that may even skip the lymph nodes. Um, and so I don't think we fully understand the process of metastasis. And um, a lot of it has to do with tumor capabilities. A lot of it has to do with immune protection um, and how those two things come together. And it's going to be laboratory studies that will help us uh, sort out uh, who's who uh, so that we can tailor the appropriate treatment to the appropriate patient. 
Um, the other interesting thing about Sentinel Node is it is it's really the first place where um, the tumor and the immune system uh, interact. Um, the uh, it happens actually even before the metastasis arrives at the Sentinel Node. Uh, there are presumably factors that are released from the primary tumor. Uh, that affect things like lymphangiogenesis. They affect uh, immune competence in the central node, um, and so it's a it's an outstanding in vivo human model essentially of the immune effects of melanoma. And with the availability of uh, the new immunomodulators, uh, checkpoints, and other um, uh, drugs that are in the pipeline, uh, the central node really could potentially serve as a, as an outstanding site to um, to ask important clinical questions, not so much necessarily about the treatment of the sentinel node itself, uh, but about um, treatment of melanoma as a disease and how the immune system might best be um, used uh, as a tool to uh, to help treat these patients. Okay, so a uh, million dollar question. So your your wife, your daughter, your mother, your father has an intermediate th- intermediate thickness melanoma. Uh, what are you going to, when they ask you your opinion, what are you going to advise that they do? Uh, immediate lymphadenectomy or, or observation? Are you comfortable enough with, uh, with the observation and the data from the study? Yeah. I mean, obviously you have to have the central node done, uh, and then, um, you want to know exactly what was in the central node, um, and how much, uh, how, how large was, was the metastasis in the central node? Where was it? What were the characteristics of their primary tumor? And with that, you can um, sort of develop a, a, a way to weight uh, the risks and benefits that are involved. So uh, you'd be able to estimate with some degree of accuracy what, what are the chances of there being something in the, uh, in the non-central nodes. Um, and, um, and then with that information, sort of decide, well, here's the likelihood I'm going to get anything out of this additional operation. And uh, here are the downsides to it, and then you make that decision. And I am completely comfortable with uh, uh, patients uh, saying, you know, I don't think that that information is really going to make a difference to me. Um, I've either decided I'm already going to do adjuvant IPI or whatever it might be, um, or I'm not. And um, and so having the additional information from that isn't so bad. And it's a reliable patient that I know is going to come back for their follow-up visits, going to have their ultrasounds done. I'm completely comfortable with people making that choice to uh, to go with observation. Uh, I'd be uncomfortable um, if it were someone I didn't have confidence was going to come back um, because one of the terrifying things of not doing the dissection is that if you lose regional control, that can be a clinically devastating thing. Uh, so patients who have bulky, uh, unresectable uh, regional metastases, it's a horrible, uh, symptomatic, uh, difficult clinical situation, and there are not great ways of fixing it. Uh, so you don't want to have somebody that's going to go off and not follow up with you, uh, choose observation. You want to be sure you're going to still uh, keep a handle on them. So now it's time for the segment that we call Tips and Tricks. It's when we ask our experts to give us some helpful hints to get us out of those sticky situations. So we thought with you, one of the things we talk about is lymph leak. When you're confronted with this, just, you know, we have a lot of different uh, range of listeners to the podcast. How do you diagnose it? How long do you wait? When do you decide to intervene, potentially either minimally invasive or open up? And what are the tips and tricks that you have to get these to stop? 
Um, well, it depends on um, it depends on where you are from a, a clinical standpoint. The 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 best is prevention, right? The best uh, the best technique, the best strategy is prevention. Um, and so, for sentinel node biopsy, uh, my bias is uh, to avoid, and really, it's it's seroma is typically the way it in, in, ends up presenting. So, avoiding that is. Um, in my mind, less about applying more clips or tying off more lymphatics during the process of the uh, sentinel node biopsy itself. Um, in fact, I'm using fewer and fewer clips as, as uh, the years go by, um, and more about um, uh, avoiding cutting unnecessary things. Um, and so the fewer lymphatics that you cut over the course of the uh, biopsy, the less likely it is you're going to end up with a seroma. Um, and so really, you just want to get the things that are going directly into the sentinel node and not to be cutting a whole lot of stuff on your way there. Um, and the other thing is the closure of the wound. Um, uh, so I'll always uh, close the lymphatic layer of, uh, of the biopsy. And it's not with, uh, you don't want to use great big uh, bites where you might be getting into nerves or vessels that are around uh, the area of the biopsy, but just enough uh, to close up the dead space um, and... Uh, and that, I think, really helps prevent at least symptomatic uh, seromas from forming. Um, but if you get a seroma um, in uh, uh, somebody who's had a sentinel node biopsy done, I'll tend to avoid doing anything to it if, uh, if I can. Um, if it is not symptomatic, it's not that bothering the patient, I will leave it alone uh, for fear of causing problems by uh, aspirating it. And typically, it'll come right back if you aspirate it. And the only way to really get it to go away, if it is symptomatic, is to uh, to put a drain in it, and then uh, and then get the uh, drain out when it's uh, when it's sealed itself. Uh, for patients that have had full dissections, I mean that's kind of where you get into uh, lymphatic leaks that are um, a little bit more of a challenge. Uh, and I will leave the drain in as long as uh, the area is draining out to about uh, five weeks, uh, typically. And if it's still draining at that point, uh, but the wound seems to have healed well, uh, then often we'll just take the drain out, uh, the assumption being that the drain is sitting on the end of some transsectoral lymphatic, uh, but that the space has, uh, has healed around it. And most of the time that uh, works out just fine. They don't develop a seroma at that point, and, and you could be done. Um, but um, but if, it does, if it does, you do develop a, a late seroma after that sort of thing, then you just sort of have to put the drain back in. I don't have any uh, clever additional things to do besides uh, adequate drainage, uh, but they always uh, they will always seal um, as long as your drain's not sitting on top of a lymphatic, uh, keeping it open. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, well, now uh, what we'll do is we'll wrap up, and we always wrap up uh, all of our interviews with what we call the final five. So these are just five uh, nice, simple, easy questions that kind of let our listeners get uh, you get to know you and our, our guests um, a little bit better uh, on a personal level. So uh, number one, um, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if you do, uh, what kind of music do you like to listen to? Uh, usually there's music on, and I usually leave it up to the anesthesiologist. And I'm pretty good with anything uh, except uh, gangster rap and uh, death metal. Number two, do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests outside of the OR? Well, most of my hobbies have to do with my kids at this point. Um, so uh, we do some running where our family does a lot of running. Uh, and 
also camping. Uh, so um, my oldest boy is in the Boy Scouts, and uh, family goes camping pretty regularly as well. All right, number three, is there a favorite uh, trip or vacation uh, that you've taken that uh, you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Uh, most of my travel now is work-related, and so that is uh, often interesting, but not really uh, fabulous. Um, but the best trips in recent years really have been um, these high-adventure high trips uh, with my son, uh, where we're out in the wilderness with his uh, Boy Scout troop somewhere. Uh, no cell phone service, uh, no email availability. Um, generally, pretty pretty nice trips. And number four, if you weren't doing medicine at all, what would you be doing? Well, I think I would be doing the other the other parts of what I'm I'm doing at the moment. I'd uh, either be teaching or uh, working in science. And the great thing about being a, a surgeon uh, is that you get to do all of those things. Okay, number five, if you could go back in time and uh, meet yourself on your first day of surgical internship, what one piece of advice would you give yourself? Well, that it's all going to be okay, you know, uh, that uh, surgical internship, surgical residency is a um, transformative experience, I think even still, uh, and uh, some things good, some things not as good, uh, but... Um, it leaves you a uh, stronger, more capable person and uh, and really changes you into uh, something more than what you were. So um, all of the challenges uh, that come along with internship, come along with residency, uh, are, uh, are well worth it. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining us on Behind the Knife. I guess from all of our listeners, I can say congratulations again on the most recent study, which everybody can find in the New England Journal of Medicine, and, and truly for putting together a project that is you know, something that we don't see a whole lot of, and that's absolutely practice-changing. So thanks again for sharing a lot of the behind-the-scenes thing, as well as taking the time out on this uh, beautiful afternoon here in Cleveland, and join us on BTK. You bet. Thanks for having me. Until next time, dominate the day. 